I'm Russell Faust. I'm the medical director for Oakland County Health. I've been there for just about two years now. And if I'm there for another decade, I might just begin to get the hang of things. Every day is overwhelming. Every day is a steep learning curve. Every day is different. And it's a great job. I occasionally feel as though I make a positive difference in my community. And I live in this community. It's a great place to live. Frankly, I could live anywhere in the country and we choose to live here. The quality of life here is just outstanding. And certainly Fire Rescue EMS contributes to that quality of life here. Hello and welcome to another Season 1 bonus episode of the EMS On Air podcast. The mission of this podcast is to keep healthcare providers safe, informed, and prepared. Today is September 23, 2020. I'm Jeff Lassers and I'll be your host. The man you just heard in the intro is none other than my good buddy, Dr. Russell Faust, the medical director of Oakland County Health in Southeast Michigan. Way before he was Dr. Faust, he was EMT Faust back in New York. That explains a lot about his passion and drive to help and work with EMS systems. Throughout Season 1, Dr. Faust has been a huge asset to the EMS On Air podcast by lending his expertise and voice to the ears and minds of EMS providers and other healthcare professionals throughout the COVID pandemic. In today's bonus episode, Dr. Faust kicks us off with an update of the status of the virus and its impact on our communities. Then, our other resident expert and all-around amazing human being, Dr. Steve McGraw, joins in to discuss the differences in the COVID infection and severity rates between what we experienced in March and April 2020 and the spike that occurred in August 2020. In August 2020, it appears there was an increased rate of COVID transmission, but a decreased rate in severity and fatality. Dr. McGraw and Dr. Faust provide their perspectives on this topic and much more. Then we finish off the episode about what EMS might expect as we transition to cold and flu season. In our last bonus episode on September 10, 2020, we provided an overview of the updated OCMCA COVID-19 emergency protocols. Again, you can find these protocols on the OCMCA EMS Protocols app or at ocmca.org protocols. It is important that EMS providers stay on top of their latest protocols in order to keep themselves and their patients safe. That episode was launched through all the various podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Buzzsprout, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and most other platforms. Whatever podcast platform you use, please leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us to grow this podcast. As soon as we launch an episode, we start the paperwork and process to get it approved to be available through our education partners, AmericanCME.com, for EMS continuing education credits. Recording, editing, and posting a podcast episode is a lot of work. On top of launching on all the typical podcast platforms, there are a number of things that have to be done in order to get it ready and approved for EMS continuing education credits and launched on American CME. That's why there is always a delay between the date that we release an EMS On Air podcast episode on all the podcast platforms and the date that we release the episode on AmericanCME.com. Trust me, if we could make it happen faster, we would. But there are procedures in place for a reason and we are happy to follow them. So expect the September 10 episode to be available for CEs on American CME by mid-October and today's episode should be available by late October. We'll keep you posted on the progress. 
In the meantime, while you wait for this episode and the last episode to get approved for CEs, catch up on Season 1 because there are now 10, that's right, 10 total episodes of the EMS On Air podcast on American CME, where EMS providers can earn continuing education credits. Go to AmericanCME.com, click on the Courses link, then click on Free Courses. Scroll through the courses list and look for the courses with the EMS On Air podcast logo. Then complete an entire podcast episode course and then a brief post-course quiz and survey. Your completion records will be saved indefinitely. Most of the EMS On Air podcast episodes on American CME are approved for EMS Operations Emergency Preparedness Credits. This is a tough EMS CE for a lot of EMS providers to get, so get on over to AmericanCME.com and get you some credits. Did I mention that you can access all of American CME's content for free? Yeah, free. So I know we keep mentioning that Season 2 is going to start soon, and that we're going to talk less COVID and more everything and anything else EMS. Trust me, we're getting there. The EMS Center podcast is currently produced and disseminated 100% by volunteers with a whopping $0 funding. It is not easy keeping up with the requests of our listeners and the national EMS audience with limited resources, but we're going to keep on trucking and figure out how to get this thing funded and make even more of an impact. So even though we're a small operation, we plan on growing this thing into a machine that fosters a culture of continuous learning. We have a solid lineup of experts slated to come on the podcast starting in October, and we're planning on some live streaming CE sessions. That will be kicking off in association with the Oakland County Medical Control Authority and American CME. We'll be pushing pretty hard on EMS recognition of stroke and the use of stroke severity scales in the pre-hospital setting, but we'll also be hitting hard on other topics like cardiac arrest, mental health for first responders, and a whole lot of really interesting and intriguing content. Please keep emailing your questions, comments, feedback, and episode ideas to qi at ocmca.org and visit ocmca.org slash coronavirus for the latest information, protocols, podcast episodes, and other details. Follow us on Instagram at EMS On Air and wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember, whatever podcast platform you use, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us to grow the podcast. Enjoy the episode. Good morning, Dr. Faust. How are you today? Good morning. I'm well. Thank you. How are you all doing? Doing fantastic. Would you mind starting us off in the conversation today with an update as of September 23rd, 2020 regarding COVID and how it's related to us as human beings? COVID? Well, a novel topic. Let me just quickly review what's going on in Oakland County case-wise and then kind of talk about it, just the couple of peaks that we have seen and how they differ. Right now, we're over 16,000 cases in county. 16,185 as of yesterday. Fatalities, over 1,000. About 1,100 fatalities, 1,139 to be specific. And recovered, and of course this number continues to climb, 13,008 recovered. You know, we had our first peak back in early April. And when you superimpose the peak of cases with the peak of fatalities, the fatalities followed the peak of cases by about two weeks. And Dr. McGraw will, will certainly uh, confirm this, what he sees in the hospital. What's interesting is we've had a second peak, much lower, of course, here in about mid-August, but without the associated peak of fatalities. So what we saw here in mid-August is we saw the numbers go up again, daily numbers, and then they've been kind of drifting down we were up as high as 200 in a day in mid-August. Back in April, we were up to as high as 300 in a day of cases, new diagnoses. 
but they've been drifting down now since mid-August, and we're seeing anywhere from 30 to 100 in a day. The frustration with those numbers is that we're dependent on the labs reporting to us. So clearly the total number of tests is a gross underestimate because people don't report negatives, despite this being a mandate in the law. That is, the CARES Act dictates that if you're going to be testing, performing diagnostic tests, urgent cares, pharmacies, hospitals, whoever, physicians, offices, you must report the results to the health department. This is not happening. So that, that's a profound frustration for us. And for the folks that are really performing the rapid antigen tests, the urgent cares, they're not reporting. If they're reporting anything, they're only reporting positives. They're not reporting negatives. So, of course, our percent positivity, and I'm putting air quotes around that, our percent positivity really is um, inaccurate. It's an overestimate because we don't have the actual number of total tests being conducted. We don't have the negatives. However, the good news is that despite this peak in mid-August, and now it's kind of trending down, despite that peak, we didn't see a corresponding peak in fatalities. And Dr. McGraw can speak to this, what they're seeing through the emergency rooms and hospitals. We're just not seeing that. And and we've discussed this before. We're not really sure whether that reflects an early fatality in an elderly and vulnerable population back in April, March, April, May. And we're not seeing that now. I suspect that's part of it. And those folks that know they're vulnerable, man, they're they're hiding out. They're not leaving their long-term care, independent living. They're they're not going anywhere. And they're very careful about who comes in. So at least they're they're protecting themselves. I think that's part of it. In addition, a lot of the cases we're seeing now just aren't severely ill, as we've been seeing back in March, April, May. Well, what we're dealing with right now at County, we're just being crushed by teams, outbreaks in high schools, outbreaks in swim teams, orchestras, bands, various high school groups that are back a few weeks ago were at graduation parties and now are congregate kinds of gatherings outside school and bringing that into school. We see very little evidence of transmission within the schools right now. Most of it, we believe, is occurring outside. However, when they go to school or go to work sick and expose others, we do have uh, large numbers of students right now quarantined to deal with the exposures. Overall, I'm delighted that we're not seeing the fatalities that we experienced early on. We're not seeing the crush in our hospitals and the desperate search for ventilators. Dr. McGraw, would you like to comment on any of that? Well, first of all, I'm so grateful to Dr. Faust. Like me, he's very thankful that we're not seeing this crush of desperately ill people. That's not to say we don't have people that are sick, however. What's interesting, and, and I would really appreciate your insight on this too, Dr. Faust, I think we're seeing people that get exposed and get sick, but it seems to, and even if they have findings consistent with bilateral pneumonia, they're not as hypoxic. My sort of pet theory goes back to when we said, I think two months ago, that maybe the truth is they're younger. As you point out, the older folks are hunkering down, but also they might be younger, but I also think they're getting less viral particles in their initial exposure because either they're wearing a mask or the person that exposed them is wearing a mask. And by that, I mean, they may be coughing, but they're coughing into a mask. Some of it leaks around and some of it gets to the person that it becomes my patient. But since they don't get this huge inoculum, their immune system doesn't have that overwhelming cytokine storm that seems to put a lot of people in the most grave condition. And it's just my pet theory. I don't really have a good study that can confirm that. But it is striking that before when we saw an uptick in, in number of cases, 
we would then see within about two weeks, was exactly right, Dr. Faust, we would start to see the people coming to the emergency department much more desperate, air hungry, tachycardic, hypotensive, with sometimes arriving in multi-organ failure. I'm just not seeing that. I am seeing people that even have to be admitted. They need supplemental oxygen, but they, for whatever reason, there, and I don't think there's any evidence that the mutations that have occurred have got any appreciable difference in infectivity. I don't, I haven't read anything like that. In fact, if anything, I think people are surprised that an RNA virus like this hasn't mutated more. But having said that, I think it's really maybe a function of the age of the patient as well as the amount of viral particles they get on their inoculation. You know, there has been that mutation that's basically usurped the original strain. You know, it didn't exist back in February. According to the studies, it's not any more severe in its infection, but it does appear to be more infectious, that is, more easily transmitted, that is, perhaps binds more readily to the receptor on the epithelial cell, something like that, because there has to be an explanation for how it basically became the predominant strain. I don't think there's any evidence that that's the explanation for people doing better now that are are becoming infected. The other thing is, you guys have just become so experienced and good at treating these people now. You're aggressive in terms of suppressing and uh, preventing that cytokine storm that results in the fatality, right? And we have remdesivir as well. We are definitely, I think, seeing a benefit. I'm even discharging patients who don't need supplemental oxygen to any significant extent on steroids, which wasn't happening back in March and April with widespread. I mean, actually, I did it if they were wheezing, interestingly, and maybe those were concomitant asthmatics, but it is now sort of our standard of practice. And I also think that the early you start steroids has a big impact, not just giving them in general. And as you point out, when they do get admitted, many of them do qualify for remdesivir for five days. And I think their progression is more rapid in a positive direction than it was before. And there are patients that are still getting convalescent plasma on a sort of a study basis. So you're right. We have, I think, a lot more tools. I haven't admitted a patient in the last several months that didn't immediately go prone. Uh, you know, how much oxygen was almost irrelevant. They're all prone. I had a, a physician colleague that had to be in our hospital for five days, and I'll bet he was prone 20 hours a day. And it really seemed to help a lot. I know it got him out of the hospital faster, and he was doing better and mobilized earlier. Things that we just did, maybe didn't even have an inkling of back in March, we are now doing, as you correctly point out, you know, just routinely, we have that as part of our practice. Yeah. It's, it's regarding remdesivir, it's unfortunate that it's authorized use has been somewhat paradoxical. That is, we know that its biological effect is to inhibit replication of the virus. If that's the case, you really don't want to wait until somebody is severely globally infected and on a vent and death's door before you authorize the use of remdesivir. But that's how it, it was first authorized. And then they've expanded it to those that are hospitalized. But, you know, honestly, the earlier you get remdesivir into someone, better off they'll be because it'll inhibit replication of the virus and decrease the severity of overall infection. I'm hoping that it becomes more readily available and hopefully maybe distributed through public health as antivirals were during the H1N1. 
I think that's a great point. And, you know, in our system, it's ironic that it, just as you correctly point out, the patients that qualify for remdesivir really need three criteria. They have to have a critical care and a pulmonary consultation so that three physicians, the admitting physician, the pulmonologist, and the critical care intensivist all agree it's a good candidate. And the patient can't be in multi-organ failure. So they have to be in the sweet spot. They have to require increasing amounts of oxygenation but not so much down the road to cytokine storm that they're in renal failure or in shock or in ARDS. They can't have any of those things. So you're right. It's become this drug that we've learned to use somewhat paradoxically. But I do see, however, when they do start it and they start it earlier, it seems like it has the best effect for the patient. So people have heard me say this a thousand times. The virus is dumb. It just does what it does. But we're not, and we are adapting. We have brilliant people in cellular biology labs all over the world trying to solve this problem. And I think, yes, I think we'll have vaccines. I think we'll even have medical treatments. Remdesivir will be one time we'll look back sometime next year and go, well, that was our first you know, antiviral for blocking replication. I think we'll have others. And I think we'll have attachment site inhibitors. I think there's a lot of hope for the future. We just, you know, we need to listen to common sense Dr. Redmond at the CDC, I thought, made a great statement. Before we have a viable vaccine that's proven to be both safe and effective, we have masks, we have social distancing, we have quarantining and tracing for those that we know are exposed but haven't infected anyone yet. And there's a lot we can do. We're demonstrating that all the time. We just have to hang in there until the, you know, maybe the more powerful weapons become included in our toolbox. We're not helpless, and we've proven that. I'm hopeful. Agreed. So before I go, you know, I started out as an EMT in New York, and I got to say, I'm just so grateful to live in Oakland County. Fire, rescue, EMS here is just stellar. And I am, and all of us at Oakland County Health are profoundly grateful for the partnership we have with Fire Rescue EMS in Oakland County with Dr. McGraw and all of you at OCMCA. It makes our jobs so much easier to have a connection with the community with you folks. And I just wanted to express my profound gratitude and the gratitude of all of Oakland County Health. So Dr. McGraw and EO160, it goes over a number of things that specifically detail when I should be wearing face coverings. And when I'm in an ambulance, getting six feet away from my partner, although sounds good sometimes, isn't always possible, (laughs) right? Sure. So I think it's important to understand context with the emergency order is essentially the law of the land from the state saying, you will. Yeah, I've had a lot of questions about this exact thing. And so let me just put all my cards on the table. I think it's very difficult to write executive orders or protocols that cover every contingency. And what sometimes happens when you have to do that is things don't seem like they're entirely intuitive. A good example is the one you mentioned, having to wear a face mask when it's just you and your partner in the cab. But there are a couple of things that I think somewhat justify this. First, remember that during our individual shifts or encounters, one or both of us could become exposed. We're doing our best to not only try to protect ourselves, but others from what we have. Let's just say if I'm the driver and my partner sitting in the bench seat next to me, but on the last run, I was the patient care and I got myself exposed, not knowing it. It's bad enough that I'm going to get sick. Even worse if I were to inadvertently make my partner sick. We work in a hostile environment. 
and the same thing happens in the emergency department. We wear our masks even when we're not around the patients. We're in our dictation room doing our charting. reason we do that is because we want to protect. If I just got exposed, I don't want to three hours later expose one of my partners next to me at the computer when we're only separated by three or four feet. So there is a method to the madness. It doesn't seem like it. And their enforcement, as you correctly point out, Jeff, they are being strict. And I think the reason they're also being strict about it is they don't want it to look like they're not serious about it. You know, it's one of those things. It almost gets me to worry a little bit that people will not understand that, that they're being consistent, but would rather, you know, sort of like treating us like they're our parent telling us because I said so. There is a method to and a scientific basis for the executive order in this case. So it's a long way of saying it seems kind of extreme, but they are enforcing it. They're enforcing it across the board. And I would argue that I guess that's predictable then. And all we have to do is just do the right thing, protect ourselves, protect our partners while in an ambulance. I want to be cautious to people. I don't think the state is trying intently to be overly strict. I think what they're saying is they just want us while we're on our job to make sure we're following the EO. And there are some instances in other departments where a medic may be on their way to a call in a private vehicle in certain parts of the state. And maybe the worry is that if they don't enforce things to their logical detail, that it'll be taken to the extent, well, they're not really serious about it. I can't speak for our state of Michigan or for the Bureau or for having sex the governor, but I think they've been in the vast majority of the EOs, they've been more right than wrong, and we have to give them the benefit of the doubt, even though I don't love the idea that there's a $1,000 fine assessed with this. I don't like anybody to be fined, and I most importantly don't want our, our providers doing their level best to comply to, to be fined. And I would ask that if anybody does get a citation, see whatever you can do to protect yourselves and your agency. I think in most cases, what they'll do is they'll say, if you can show us what you're doing to correct this, there won't be an actual financial penalty imposed. Don't blow it off. Don't ignore it. Don't tell them that you don't believe in the executive orders. Show them where you're you know, utilizing your best practice, your policies, your procedures to meet the letter and spirit of the executive order. Protect yourselves, protect our public, and protect yourselves from our public in any way you can. There's not enough of us to begin with. We don't need anybody getting sick. God forbid. So how do you avoid this situation is one, adhering to it so that when Karen or Kyle have their cell phone in their hands, they're not posting them and saying things they shouldn't and or yeah. maybe turning people in. Remember, there's cameras everywhere. Just be cognizant of that as well. You know, Jeff, I agree with that. I got to tell you, I get weary of self-identified enforcers of the law or vigilantes. I don't know why that has become sort of acceptable. I guess I blame all the superhero movies in the last 10 years. It I just, think it's, it, everybody thinks they are one. It, it really kind of grates against me. I would much, you know, instead of taking my picture and sending to the state, I would much rather have somebody say to me, you know, gee, doc, why aren't you wearing the appropriate face mask at work? I'm good with that. Right. You know, I'll get, hey, I'm glad you mentioned it. I, I don't know how I forgot it or it's, you know, in my pocket, I apologize or something. Whatever, whatever I would do to obviously start behaving like I should. But if, you know, if they were to take a picture of me or a video and send it to the state going, you got to run this guy out of town, I would feel terrible because now the state's in a position where they've got to, you know, treat me like everybody else. Right. And even if they don't want to, they, they've got to look at it as a challenge to the EO. These things have lost to me their way a little bit when people try to take the, the place of the state. The state's done a very good job trying to keep all of us safe, trying to keep our public safe. They don't need our help. In enforcement. They need all of us to just simply do what we're supposed to do. Chris? Agreed with everything that Dr. McGraw just said. I think that 
my take on the to and from to work and gas pump things, I think that's just because in uniform, we kind of set the tone for folks that we set a standard, maybe help make that more acceptable to folks and they'll wear a mask as well. But I do know that the department has been education and not heavy handed enforcement on this issue. The one thing I'd like to point out, though, is to make sure that part of the directive, uh, EO, was that we would have a plan. I'm sure all the LSAs know that, to have a plan that covers infectious control practices, proper use of PPE. A lot of the stuff we're already doing that falls within with the SPRN would fall in with COVID. But again, that plan has to have folks that are designated supervisors, a written plan, training rosters that if requested by the state, you have to have that packet to turn over or that training. I know I've uh, shared ours with a couple other agencies and be willing to share it and somebody can backspace it and look at it. But that's important that they have that, especially the training documentation side of it. Thank you very much for that, Chris. One last question, Dr. McGraw. It's coming up to be October. You can smell it in the air. It used to smell what we used to call back in the day football season, but I don't hear any drum lines in the air anymore. So it's a little bit weird, but the smell still seems the same. And this is where I get the bonfire going and everything else. That means winters are coming. So can you give us a little bit of what to expect as we transition into our cold and flu season? Well, respiratory viruses are more easily transmitted in colder, drier air, and we're tending to be more indoors than outdoors once it gets, you know, routinely below 40. So, yeah, I, I don't think it's a surprise to anybody that the CDC projects that we'll have an increase in rate of transmission of both influenza and COVID-19. If you're looking through the world's view of the glasses half full, however, I would point out that the same thing you would do to prevent COVID-19 transmission is pretty effective for preventing transmission of influenza A or B. And the reason I think that's good is those habits are kind of then going to give us a two-for-one benefit. Social distancing, wearing masks. If we have any gauge, and I think there is some that we can take, the winter in the Southern Hemisphere is coming to a close. And they had one of the lightest flu seasons in the history of record keeping. Why is that important? I think it's because they were wearing the same kind of masks and social distancing to prevent COVID that indirectly and concurrently impacted their rate of transmission of influenza. And I think the same thing will happen to us. I think we'll still have COVID and we'll have more of it, but I think we'll have less flu than a normal year. And that'll be a good thing. Also, the same thing once you have COVID-19 or influenza that we would tell you to do will help the other one. If you are exposed or confirmed to have it and in your quarantine, you're by definition going to be protecting others from both COVID and influenza, which should also contribute to a decrease in transmission. It's a long answer. I think we're going to see an increase in rate. I think we're going to see a little confusion when I tell patients, you have the flu, but you may also have COVID-19 or you have COVID-19, you may also have the flu. It is going to be a little dicey, but the truth is the treatment is going to depend on their condition. In the vast majority of cases, influenza does not cause confluent bilateral atypical pneumonia and multi-organ failure. So it will take some testing and it'll take both swabbing as well as serologic testing, but we'll quickly be able to sort out who is and who isn't sick enough to stay in the hospital. And for those that stay in the hospital, we have more treatment now than ever and are going to get more. And for those that don't have to stay in the hospital, the things they do to treat their COVID at home will also have a benefit in treating and preventing the transmission of influenza as well. So I'm daunted a little bit, 
but like the people that have confronted this disease now for seven months, I think all of us have more confidence than ever that we can make a difference. We can help people in different ways and continue to improve going forward. So the good news is keep doing what you're doing. Just recognize that colder, drier air is a better environment for viruses. That's it. So it's just maintaining what we're already doing. Any closing thoughts from you, Chris? No, I think that uh, summarizes everything quite nicely. And just uh, the crossing my fingers that we roll into a smooth fall. I'm with you there. From your lips to God's ears, Chris Haney. Thank you. That's all for the show today, everyone. Thank you to Dr. McGraw and Dr. Faust for keeping everybody up to speed and informed. Please continue to email your questions, comments, feedback, and ideas to qi at ocmca.org and visit ocmca.org slash coronavirus for the latest information, protocols, podcast episodes, and other details. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at emsonair and please leave a rating and a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. It really does help. Thanks for listening to the EMS On Air podcast. Stay safe and have a great day.